Okay, all right, we are live. Wow, I just sat here and waited for about 10 seconds, maybe even longer than that, 30 seconds uh, to go live. But hey, thanks for being here, guys. I'm glad that this would work. I hope it continues to stream well. Uh, thanks for joining us in this week's discussion as we uh, want to think deeply about Christianity and this week looking at differences in the Gospels and thinking dip deeply about what is written there and what can we trust in those things. Also, I want to give you guys the opportunity to interact with scholars in the areas related to Christian worldview so you can learn and grow from them and become better defenders of the faith. And so this week, we're going to be having a discussion, as I mentioned, on why there are differences in the Gospels. Uh, my guest joining me is Mike Lacona. He is an associate professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. He is the president of Risen Jesus Ministries. He also has written many books, debated on many college campuses. So Mike, thank Thank you so much for coming on and joining me this week. Oh, my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So again, I hope the Skype works, the connection, everything seems to be going weird right now, but uh, we're definitely going to have a fun conversation. And, you know, we met a while back. We had some good conversations. Uh, you, you talked to me about grad school and getting my PhD, which I ended up not doing. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate the work that you've done and the ability to come on and have this conversation uh, with me today. And so I hope we're all going to learn from this. Uh, I know I have a lot of questions. And um, I hope my guests send in those questions as well. So for those of you who are uh, watching, send in those live questions. Uh, we'll try to get to them as best as we can. Uh, and if you're watching late, make sure you catch the live stream on time. <laughs> and so you can interact uh, live. Uh, so uh, Mike, why don't you, we kind of start off um, I, I, kind of in this basic kind of idea of apologetics. I've read your story. Uh, you kind of grew up in a, a Christian and uh, you had kind of an interesting uh, walk kind of finding and discovering apologetics and why you end up studying the New Testament deeply. So you kind of want to share a little bit of your background and what led you into becoming a New Testament scholar. Well, Ryan, I uh, became a Christian at the age of 10, didn't grow too much as a teen, um, went to a Christian university, and there it was just fertile ground for me to grow spiritually. And, and so I did. I was just in Scripture I was, I was reading scripture at least an hour a day uh, in my undergrad years and praying an hour to two hours a day. I just felt like I was getting really close to the Lord, growing in Christ. I was loving it. And um, we'd hear people come in for chapel and for various services, and they would talk about how the original language, you know, when you read the Gospels in Greek, it adds this much kind of, a, um, of insights to the text. And after a while, I just decided I wanted to learn Greek. And um, you have to understand, I was a gifted student. When they gave me a C, it was a gift. Um, <laughs> so um, I was never a, a who's who. I was uh, one of those who's that. Um, but I just really had a passion to to learn to read the New Testament in its original language. And so I applied to grad school for New Testament studies. I was accepted um, on probation because my grades weren't high enough to get into that because it was an academic uh, program. Um, I had to take a year's worth of Greek over the summer between uh, graduating from college and grad school. I did. Um, and uh, I, I just aced all my Greek courses. I had a roommate who was involved in the Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics, and I just saw no need for it. Um, you know, they were t talking about David Hume and answering him. And I thought, but you're saying he's 18th century. Why are you just getting around to answering him now? You know, are people still ask, asking the same or giving the same kind of objections? And I don't need apologetics. I, 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 I don't doubt my faith. And I didn't need it until I started doubting my faith. Mm. 
And then I needed apologetics yeah. and they turned me on to Gary Habermas and, um, man, because, you know, he was willing to spend a little time with me. I think that's why I'm a Christian today. So yeah. And I spent a lot of time studying the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. What else? You know, I'm, I'm studying with Gary Habermas yeah. and, um, and then right after my doctorate, um, I, I really actually toward the end of my doctorate, even really started to get interested in the gospels reliability, differences, especially differences, because I noticed that this was the, perhaps the number one objection against the reliability of the Gospels. And at that point, you know, I was familiar with, there was work done by Richard Burridge and others, Craig Keener, who were saying that the Gospels are ancient biographies and that this, um, there was a flexibility in reporting, more of a flexibility in reporting back then, uh, that was acceptable then than we would be comfortable with today. Yeah. So I wanted to find out what that was about. And so I spent eight years studying about ancient biography and, and applying that to gospel differences. And that's what resulted in the book uh, that was published in 2017. Yeah. And I'm definitely excited to kind of uh, to get into this book and discuss some of those aspects. Uh, you know, for me, as I was reading through the book, I guess I was surprised at some of the differences that I wasn't even aware of. And I think maybe for a lot of Christians, uh, we read the Gospels, you know, independently in the sense that like I read through Luke and then I read through Mark and then I read through Matthew and I don't even realize the small ways in which they are changed. Uh, and so uh, maybe at the beginning, and I guess the Christians might ask, well, why should I care about small ways in which they're changed? And so uh, what, what is this an issue? I mean, I can see... Uh, uh, your time spent in the resurrection, and, and I appreciate that work. I had Dr. Gary Habermas on a, a few months ago to discuss that, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, what is it about gospel differences that is important enough that you're writing a book on it? Well, I saw that it was shaking the faith of a lot of believers, and then you had people like Bart Ehrman, who's a friend of mine, um, but you had people like Bart Ehrman and others who were you know, using gospel differences to cast a lot of um, doubt on the reliability of the Gospels. And, you know, I'd finished about the resurrection. So I, I knew, you know, if Jesus, once you settle that Jesus rose from the dead, Christian, you know, Christianity is true, period. Yeah. Um, and um, if the Bible has some errors and contradictions in it, it doesn't undermine the truth of Christianity because Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. The Bible, uh, the truth of Christianity is, is not contingent on whether the Bible is inerrant. Mm -hmm. So, um, any, so I, but I noticed that this this troubled a lot of of evangelical believers, and so that's what motivated me to do that. Um, but it's important, I'd say, because if we truly love God's word, we want to understand it as God has given it to us. Yeah. And if it has errors in it, well, then that's the way He gave it to us, right? Um, so if it doesn't have errors, then that's the way He gave it to us. If it had errors in the autographs, but if it did not have errors in autographs, but errors crept into it over the years, then that's what we have today, and that's what he's fine with us having. Um, if it had errors in the autographs, and that has come down to us today, then that's fine. We know that God is sovereign, and that he would see to it that we have everything that we need. Um, so uh, the thing is, we should not allow our faith to be shaken because of gospel differences. I mean, after all, you know, the Titanic, you know, it sank— and there were eyewitnesses who said it broke in half. There were other eyewitnesses who said, no, it went down in one piece. But no one concluded that the Titanic didn't sink. Yeah. 
I think this is a good point because this does bring us back to this kind of mere Christianity of what is truly the most important, as you pointed out, which is the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true. Uh, but Christians also, I think, maybe get a little bit nervous when they hear this idea of, hey, if the Bible has errors in it, that's fine, because we talk about the Bible being the inerrant inspired word of God. So how do we understand this idea of inerrancy and the doctrine of inerrancy, but then also possibly admitting there are errors in Scripture? Well, first of all, I didn't say it's fine if there are errors in the Bible. What I said is Christianity is still true, Perfect. even if there are errors in the Bible. Yeah. So just to be clear on that. Yeah. Um, what I did say, though, uh, and what I also mean is, if there were errors in the autographs, then God, that's the way God did things, right? And so the reason this is important for us to study is because we want to love, cherish, and embrace God's word as he has given it to us. And that's what we need to do rather than insist that it conform to a model that's shaped by how we think he should have. Okay, yeah. So would that, I mean, would that then change our understanding of the doctrine of inerrancy? Of I guess, I don't know, I just, I just, in my mind, I think that there are some Christians that just don't even want to open that box to like, if God were to have given scripture to us in that way, we still cherish it. And they go, no, not even a possibility. <laughs> well, I'd say, what's your argument for that? You know, what's your argument that God had to give us inerrant scripture? I don't think there's a good argument for it. I know there's the typical syllogism that says God is without error. Um, the Bible's God's word. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. But you know, I think that syllogism breaks down. Um, you know, we could say uh, God is without error. Um, humans are the product of God. Therefore, humans cannot err, right? Okay. And of course, that's not the case. He didn't make us that way. He gave us free will. And guess what? The same humans who err are the agents that God chose to record his word. Yeah. So um, I think we, wh when we demand a very rigid form of inerrancy, um, we set people up to fall every time someone like a Barterman or others come along and give some gospel differences that they can't resolve, then their faith is shaken because it's based on a brittle faith, a, a doctrine of inerrancy that, you know, I, I'm not saying the, 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 the scripture is not inerrant. I'm just saying, I just, you know, I don't think we should build our faith on this tertiary doctrine of inerrancy. Yeah, no, I think that's that's good. And so actually one quick question came in, let me switch over to here really quick of, uh, how would we then understand, um, and I think this is important, when we talk about the, the Bible being God-breathed, but then also him using human authors and him inspiring authors, uh, how can we understand this idea of the Bible being God-breathed, but also using humans? Yeah, that's a great question, Dean, and uh, hello to you, too. You know, here's another guy who does podcasts, and uh, he's a friend of mine. Awesome. So, um, yeah, well, the question is, you know, if, you're saying if the Bible is God's breathe, if it's God-breathed, how can it have errors? Well, my question would be is, what does it mean to say the Bible is God-breathed? Yeah. What does that actually mean? Because that's a term that apparently was, it appears to have been coined by Paul, and he doesn't describe it or define it. Now, you'd say, well, God breathed. I mean, well, it does seem like it's referring to dictation, doesn't it? But none of us believe dictation. At least we shouldn't, um, because we see different um, personalities. We see different education levels. You know, Paul is more educated than Mark, or uh, Paul is more educated than John. You can see by his writings, there's a greater education behind it. The author of Hebrews we can see as a as a as wonderful as an orator and putting together 
um, this this letter, this homily that that he wrote. So there's different education levels. We can see that Matthew and Luke use Mark as their primary source, which is something that was very typical in antiquity. You have people like Plutarch and Livy and Tacitus and and others, and their practice was to use one primary source and then to supplement it. In fact, with Plutarch, at least 75% of, of Plutarch's lives that come during the late Roman Republic are based on a single source. It's either Asinius Pollio or a source that um, is largely based as using Pollio um, as, as that source. So when we see other ancient historians do it, it shouldn't surprise us that Matthew and Luke are using Mark as their primary source and supplementing him. Um, so we can compare how Matthew and Luke use Mark, and and we can see that they do things like they will. There are occasions where they improve Mark's rough grammar. Well, if it was dictation, then we'd have to think to ourselves, well, why would Mark have rough grammar to begin with? And did the Holy Spirit uh, go back and review Mark and say, you know what, I can do better than that? Let's say it this way in Matthew and in Luke. Um, or what about editorial fatigue? There's a couple of examples of that in Luke. You know, I don't think that the Holy Spirit's going to go back later on and say, oh, how did I miss that? You know, or Paul's uh, memory lapse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, mm, I don't remember if I baptized anyone outside the household of hmm. Stephanus. Um, you know, we don't think the Holy Spirit's saying, all right, Paul, put down your pen, take a little writing break while I go check heaven's records. Um, this isn't dictation. So what does it mean to say the Bible is God breathed? And what does it look like? And then someone might say, well, Second Peter 1, where it says, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Well, what does it mean? What does it look like to be moved hmm. by the Holy Spirit? Uh, nobody can really define that. And so what happens is people step in and they try to fill in the gaps. And they come up with scenarios that they think happen. And then that's how you come up with a very strict form of inerrancy because they're importing their ideas of precision or a certain concept, a certain model of divine inspiration, the scripture really doesn't tell us. Hmm. So I think that we, you know, we shouldn't go beyond what scripture actually says. Now you can come up with your model, but just hold it with an open hand because it could be wrong. Yeah. And so you're, you're not saying though that the doctrine of inerrancy is not important. I'm not saying it's not important. Yeah. Now, my the way I define inerrancy, and it's defined in different ways. You've got the Lausanne Covenant, which John Stott, Billy Graham, and others signed back in uh, the late 70s. And then shortly after that, you had about 300 uh, evangelicals sign the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was crafted by Norman Geisler, R.C. Sproul, and J.I. Packer. And that differs. It's a little more. It's a little stricter definition of inerrancy than the Lausanne Covenant. But then even... Geisler and Packer did not agree with one another on how to interpret the Chicago Statement. And yet there's all this fighting over it. Okay, well, you got to take the Chicago Statement. And in fact, you can't interpret the Chicago Statement like Packer does. You've got to interpret it like Norman Geisler did. Hmm. And by this time, I mean, and you've got arguing and bickering and division in the body of Christ over that. I, I think we as Christians need to grow up. Hmm. Interesting. 
So uh, I want to jump into your book, and I think this is so good, and, and um, because uh, right, this is the, this is the idea of there. There seem to be these differences, or there are differences. How do we reconcile them? And so maybe for the Christian who's like, wait, you know, I, I I'm not aware of some of these differences. Uh, what exactly are you talking about? Maybe I've heard of a couple, like how many women were at the tomb, or or that kind of thing. What would you say are some of the major gospel differences that need to be reconciled and and that Christians should know about because they often are the cause of doubt and objections against Christianity. Well, you you find the typical ones about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. So when was Jesus crucified? John seems to place it on the day after the uh, the day of the Passover meal and just before the Passover meal, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke appear to place it on the the morning after the Passover meal. In fact, Mark says Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. John places it just after noon. Um, And, you know, there are ways that people have tried to harmonize it, but, you know, I I don't think a lot of them work too well. Um, And certainly none of them can be proven. And then you look at things like, well, did Jesus carry his cross all the way, as seems to be painted by um, uh, the Gospel of John, or did Joseph of Arimathea step in and help him, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke say. And when Jesus is crucified between two thieves, did both thieves curse him, as Mark says, or did one thief uh, repent, as Luke says? And did the temple veil split in half before Jesus was crucified, as Luke has it, or was it after, as Matthew and Mark have it? And then you you look at it and you say, well, what about the resurrection narratives? Uh, uh, How many women went to the tomb? Were, Were there multiple women like the Synoptic Gospels say, or was it Mary Magdalene only, as seems to be the picture that we get in the Gospel of John? And then when she got there, how many angels did they see? Was there one, like Matthew and Mark say, or were there two, like John sa- or Luke says, or were there none, like John has at first, but then two later on, uh, that Mary Magdalene? And then who ran to the tomb? Was it Peter? like Luke says, or was it Peter and the beloved disciple, like John say? And to where did Jesus first appear to the group of his male disciples? Was it in Galilee, like Matthew and Mark suggest, or uh, Matthew says and and Mark implies, or was it in Jerusalem, like Luke and John say? So there's all these kinds of differences in the death and resurrection narratives, and these, I'd say, were are probably the ones most frequently appealed to by skeptics because they know Jesus' death and resurrection are the most important. Yeah. So I think, you know, what, what would you say then to the person that says, you know, well, okay, so there are many women or one woman or a couple angels or one angel, no big deal. I don't really care. Um, this isn't something that I should spend some time in learning. How do I kind of solve the problem of differences in the Gospels? Well, I'd say, number one, recognize that... Um, Christianity does not stand or fall on whether there are contradictions or errors in the Gospels, okay? So let's just say, worst case scenario, um, let's say um, that John had it right, and there were no angels there at the first visit by uh, Mary Magdalene, or the women, and then they saw the angels later, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are just mistaken in this, okay? That still doesn't say, that. I mean— that, that doesn't mean that there were no angels ever at the tomb. It doesn't mean that the tomb wasn't empty. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It doesn't mean that all four Gospels are incorrect. It only means that some are, at least, right? Worst case scenario. Um, so Christianity does not stand or fall 
on whether the, the, the Gospels are inerrant. Number two, um, I would say you can reconcile a lot of these quite easily. And I, I've done this in my book on Gospel Differences um, by recognizing compositional devices which were part and parcel of the genre of ancient biography, and all four Gospels are ancient biographies, I believe. Um, and so by reading the Gospels in view of the literary devices that were commonly in play in the first century, wow, um, it's like peering at the Gospels through a different lens, mm. and a lot more comes into focus. Christology comes into focus, a lot more comes into focus when you read the Gospels through the lens of first first century biography. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be getting to here as we kind of move along, and then kind of then applying it to some of these differences uh, and how we kind of reconcile them. Uh, you know, I've often heard it said, and I and I read in your book that you know people will make the claim that if the Gospels agreed in every single detail, then they would be accused of collusion. Um, but then there are differences, and we say, oh, it's errors, it's it's unreliable, throw it out. Uh, so, you know, where, yeah. where, how do we understand, you know, and respond of like, if it's all the same, then they just copy. And if it's all different, then there's a problem. It kind of seems like a lose-lose for, for Christians and how the objection is raised. That's right. Um, first of all, we, I think we, it's important to recognize there is a literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John May is probably aware of some of those Gospels, but he doesn't rely on them. He's just aware of them. I don't know if he's got any before him. Um, when he's writing, but uh, he's writing independently of them. But Matthew and Mark and Luke, there's definitely an, a literary relationship be between them. There's a relationship, and it's most likely literary. Um, most New Testament scholars today, even evangelicals, acknowledge that Matthew and Luke are relying very heavily on Mark, and they're supplementing him with other sources. Matthew, I believe, with some of his own eyewitness testimony, um, a, a lot of New Testament scholars go with the Q source, which is simply a source that Matthew and Luke would have uh, been aware of and used, but is probably not used by Mark. Okay, so um, if there's a literary relationship between these three Gospels, if they're heavily relying on Matthew, if Matthew and Luke are heavily relying on Mark and supplementing him, then we can't look at that and say, well, because there are these differences, well, that just means they weren't colluding. Because they were. It, Matthew and Luke were using Mark very robustly. So um, that I don't think that argument really works well with uh, the Synoptic Gospels. Yeah. And and that's not a problem that they're copying off a of mark. And, and I mean, because no. So in in kind of the the discussion of uh, the the evidence for the resurrection, uh, the gospels are often cited as as multiple sources, independent sources. Uh, how can they be an independent source if Luke and and Matthew are copying off a of mark? Oh well, that's a fair question. Um, what we look at and we say they aren't independent sources necessarily, at least. I mean, it, I, I believe that Matthew played a major role in the composition of that gospel. I'm not sure exactly what it is. that It gets a little thorny, um, but uh, I believe that he played an intimate role, a major role in the composition of that gospel, and as such, he would have been an eyewitness. So he would have supplemented Mark, you know, um, and could have uh, added some things to the text that Mark didn't include because Matthew had been there, you know. Mark is using Peter's recollections, but Matthew was was there, and he's bringing a little different uh, perspective to it. Um, but when it comes to the resurrection narratives, even the, the crucifixion narratives, 
there are some things that each of them are privy to that some of the others aren't, especially the resurrection narratives. So you could have something like, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay, they all report the empty tomb, and their stories are fairly similar there, so there could be some, some dependence. Okay, but then what happens after um, the women run away, right? After they see the angels and they run away, then what? Because Mark stops there. The ending of Mark has either been lost or it um, wasn't completed, or for some reason, Mark just ended it there in a very weird way, uh, for which scholars have no consensus on why he would have ended it there. So, uh, and Mark doesn't appear to have any appearances. So in that case, then Matthew and Luke could not be dependent on Mark for the resurrection appearances because Mark doesn't report any. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, for example, the appearance to the Emmaus disciples. That only occurs in Luke. We don't have that in Matthew. The appearance in Galilee. Well, I do think that um, Matthew has probably displaced that or relocated it to Galilee. Why he did, I don't know. But I am very convinced, and I give a lot of arguments for it in my book, that the appearance to the group of male disciples in Galilee and Matthew is the same appearance that Luke reports that occurred in Jerusalem. Um, so, but you've got these different things that are going on, but Luke reports some things that Matthew doesn't report. Um, yeah, and then John has some things that none of the other gospels report. So we still have some multiple independent sources. Certainly Luke is independent of Matthew in some of this resurrection narrative stuff. Yeah. Okay, perfect. That's a really good uh, way of understanding, you know, even though they do copy and, and do share um, off of Mark and, and possibly Q, uh, there still are those uh, differences that they have independent information. And so uh, there's been a, obviously a lot of attempts to, to reconcile and try to understand these gospel differences. Uh, is your approach, looking at these compositional devices, uh, is this a new approach? And, and um, can you kind of explain what your way of looking at these differences is? Well, for many years, New Testament scholars, I mean, decades, probably, I don't know how long, maybe a long, long, maybe centuries, um, New Testament scholars have appealed to certain compositional devices, such as telescoping, uh, for example, when an event is narrated over a shorter period of time than it had actually occurred, or compression. Um, so they've, they've got some compositional devices like that and some others uh, that they have a simplification uh, literary spotlighting, even though they didn't caught that. Um, and then you have uh, classicists who for a long time have talked about compositional devices, a lot of the same things like literary spotlighting. They don't call it telescoping necessarily. They call it uh, compression. They also mention things like conflation, displaced, chronological displacement, transferal, where you transfer what one person said to the lips of another person, uh, perhaps just to simplify the account, conflating characters, things like this, um, where uh, in order to move the narrative along uh, better, you could come up and craft some details to make it a better narrative, uh, make it feel more realistic to the reader. So uh, they've acknowledged these kinds of things for years. So what I did was I wanted to find out, okay, you know, uh, uh, it sounds good, this telescoping and, um, you know, they're just, like the literary spotlighting. They're just focusing on the main person. 
That's why, you know, Matthew and Mark mentioned one angel, whereas Luke and John have two. Matthew and Mark are just focusing on the angel announcing that Jesus has been raised and that the tomb is empty. Um, so these things have been recognized for a long time, but I wanted to see if there's some real justification for it. Okay. Um, so I started reading um, a lot of the biographies written within 150 years on each side of Jesus. And uh, I never got past Plutarch. And because Plutarch gives us a very unique opportunity, because it's not comparing how Plutarch and Cassius Dio and Appian and Suetonius report the same event. It's Plutarch who, when we're talking about the, the late Roman Republic, we have nine characters who pretty much lived at the same time. Many of them knew one another and many of them participated in the same events. So Plutarch is going to tell the same story uh, in different biographies. They were called lives back then. Uh, biography didn't come about as an English word until I believe it was the 17th century. Okay. So, um, you know, like the assassination of Julius Caesar is mentioned in Plutarch's lives of Caesar, Cicero, Antony, and Brutus. So you can compare how the assassination is told in all four of those. So you've got, especially when it comes to, you're looking at Cicero, I'm sorry, Caesar, Brutus, and Antony, those three were written simultaneously and within months of one another. So you've got the same author reporting the same story, using the same sources, and written simultaneously. And he never copies and pastes. Hmm. So this is a unique opportunity to see what he does with the material, how he paraphrases it, what techniques he uses. Some of these we can see that's per, that are prescribed in the compositional textbooks uh, of that day. Others we can infer from what Plutarch actually does through his writings. And it's so fascinating. It, it, it's extremely fascinating. Yeah. No, and, yeah, and it's very interesting because the, my big question as I was looking through this was, okay, I, I've kind of – I mean, I guess applied these these ways of thinking before to the differences in the Gospels and and understanding kind of what you're talking about of spotlighting of hey if there's two angels there's definitely one and I, this question comes up every time I'm I'm speaking at a youth camp and, and and it's like hey if I told someone you know there you know I talked to one student at the camp and someone went well you, there's only one student it's like well no here's the one I talked to because there's something significant with this one even though there's 50 people. Uh, and that's not a problem because that happens often. But I, it's interesting, and I, and I love what you mentioned there of, of, here's what we say about Scripture. Is there any justification for this? And you found yeah, this and, justification uh, in Plutarch. And, and let me say this. You know, we can, like, let's say you're talking to some kids at camp, and they bring up, well, were, was there one angel or were there two at the tomb? And you say, well, where there's one angel or where there's two, there's certainly one. That can just seem ad hoc, you know? And, and it... it I remember when I heard that, I thought, well, that's true, but, you know, are you just, I mean, is that really the answer? Are you just trying to get out of a tight corner? Hmm. But when you can turn around and say, but literary spotlighting was an ex was a very common literary device that's used not only by the gospel authors, but it's also, was also used by Plutarch, the greatest biographer in antiquity, hmm. and, and, and it was used by many other ancient historians. It was a very common literary device. Well, that packs some power now and authority behind that answer. Yeah, absolutely. It's no longer just uh, a shot in the dark guess. You know, you've got some good evidence to back it up now. 
Yeah. So examples of this would be uh, the, the angels at the tomb. Uh, possibly yep. the women who went to the tomb could also be an example of the spotlighting. Oh, almost certainly. Okay. Because Mary comes back. John says it uh, narrates just Mary Magdalene going out. Well, he doesn't say just, but you only he only mentions Mary Magdalene. But then she comes back to, to Peter and the beloved disciple and says they have taken the Lord and we don't know where they've laid him. We, plural, don't know where they have laid him. So, and then John's gospel says Peter and the beloved disciple went up and ran to the tomb and found it as Mary had said. But Luke says Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it as the women had said. Oh, well, what's going on there? Well, just, um, I think it's 11 or 12 verses later, you've got the Emmaus disciples and it says Jesus kept them from recognizing it. They were, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus is playing with them a little bit and says, why the long faces, guys? And they say, well, you are the only one who, in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on. And Jesus says, no, tell me what's going on. And um, so they say, you know, well, um, you know, our, our women folk went to the tomb this morning and they found it empty and some angels that said he'd been raised from the dead. And then some of our own, some of our own, plural, went to the tomb and found it as a woman had said. So it appears that Luke is using spotlighting there as well. So you've got three occasions of spotlighting just there in the resurrection narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so that's super helpful. I think that's a maybe in my mind at least that's an easier uh, that's an easier response. Is it's easy to understand. Of, okay, yeah. If there's two, there's definitely one. This makes sense. This happened in Plutarch. This is a common way in which uh, historians spoke. Uh, okay, that seems to fit. Uh, what? I guess kind of stood out to me is uh, some differences that maybe um, where the story was dramatically, at least it seems like, dramatically changed. So for example, um, in the healing of Jairus's daughter, right, where, um, and I'm trying to find again my notes, but where... Um, it's in, yeah, it's in Matthew and uh, Mark. Yeah, so you have some servants of him running out and meeting Jesus in some gospels uh, versus another gospel, leaves the servants aside and says, Matthew, Jairus, Mark and Luke. I'm sorry, yeah. Jairus ran out uh, and um, and helped the dot uh, and went to Jesus. Uh, so how do we understand where it kind of completely removes it? And I guess you could say the same thing is true about uh, when um, James and John were kind of debating of who's the greatest, who sit on Jesus left and right. Uh, what, you know, some gospels say that, uh, that, it, that they presented it to Jesus. Uh, the other one said it was, uh, their mother, uh, who said it to Jesus. So this seems to really be changing who is saying what, uh, something very different than spotlighting. How do we understand this? Well, in, in the case of, let's say Jairus raising Jairus's daughter, uh, the, the, the main difference there is that Jairus comes to Jesus in, in Mark and Luke and says, my daughter is, is about to die, come heal her. And in Matthew, he says, my daughter has just died, please come and heal her. And so Jesus says, okay, let's go to your house. And as they're on their way, that's when the woman comes up with the bleeding problems and she touches Jesus' robe and is healed. In Mark and in Luke, some servants from Jairus's home come up and they say, don't trouble the teacher anymore, your daughter is, is now died, has, she's just now died. And that's when Jesus says, don't worry, you know, just have faith. And he goes and he raises her from the dead. But again, in Matthew, Jairus comes and says, my daughter has just died. Please, she's already dead. And then no servants come out to tell him anything. Why? Because she's already dead, right? There's no need for the servants. What Matthew is doing here is compressing. He's just simplifying the story and compressing. He's just giving us a gist of what happened, the main thing. Um, and then when it comes to... Uh, 
you, you've got like, um, I think you mentioned, what was the other one you mentioned? The, uh, the James and John. Um, and James and John, yeah. Again, so in the, Mark, yeah. you've got James and John and the mother comes to, to Jesus. Um, and the mother says, hey, I want to ask you a favor, right? Um, or maybe it's... Yeah, so I... One of, them, one of them doesn't have the mother. I forgot which it is. So my guess is that Matt, uh, one of them, whether it's Ma Matthew or... Matthew has the mother, Mark does not. Okay. So I think that probably what happened here is Mar either Matthew has either added the mother or Mark has deleted her. He's airbrushed her out of the text. My guess is that's what's happened. He has airbrushed. Mark is the one that has made the move and transferred it to the disciples of James and John. And the reason being is because they probably knew that James and John were behind this thing anyway. And let's spare poor old mom here, right? Um, so that's just my guess. Yeah. But we, we really can't know. Uh, but either Matthew has added the mother or Mark has deleted the mother in order to simplify the story and transfer it over. Yeah. And we find this kind of stuff going on in Plutarch. We find it in other ancient historians. We find it in other occasions in the Gospels, too. Yeah. So before we maybe move on to other uh, examples, I guess uh, what at least come to my, comes to my mind is that we, we kind of need to take a step back and maybe think about how we understand reporting and, and the passing along of information. I, I feel like, and I've heard this before, and maybe kind of confirm if there's accuracy to this, that you know, in 21st century America, we expect very detailed reports, and we have the ability to do that. Uh, and so I think that like, to think of someone saying, oh, well, someone's mom said this when she didn't even say it, uh, well, that seems to create a problem. But you're kind of pointing out in Plutarch and other sources, like this is normal to say, hey, well, you know, James and John are behind this, let's kind of spare spare the mom or whatever, or maybe add the mom for whatever reason. Uh, and that's not as big of a deal. You know, when you read the classicists about ancient literature, um, you, you find that they, across the board, acknowledge that these sort of compositional devices are nearly universal in ancient historiography. Um, their objective was a little bit different than that of modern historians and biographers. Um, they, especially with biography, you wanted to report things, okay, but there was some latitude in the flexibility on how you reported it. People wanted good literature, not just uh, history. They wanted good literature. And that meant sometimes, uh, you know, altering some details to make, to move along the, the narrative to make it a little better, okay? Mm -hmm. It's kind of think of it th this way, maybe in modern terms. Um, there was a movie several years ago called The Gospel of John, and it was the story of, of Jesus, okay? And, I mean, it was great. I think it came out a little bit after The Passion of the Christ. And with The Passion of the Christ, you know, Mel Gibson added some stuff in it um, that was not historical. But with the music and everything behind it, it really just brought that story to life. It brought tears to your eyes. I mean, I well up every time. Um, I, I watched The Passion of the Christ, and my wife and I watch it almost every year. I saw it seven times in the theater, and um, but I didn't do that with the Gospel of John. Why? Because the music and the narrative that Gibson created in that just pulled me into it. It made me part of it and got me emotionally involved in the story, whereas the movie The Gospel of John didn't do that. So the ancients wanted that as well. Uh, they wanted accurate history, accurate history. But they didn't care if people just, um, you know, didn't report every detail. 
precisely as we would want it today. So if Matthew narrates the count as though Jairus comes to Jesus and says, my daughter has just died, you're not going to have a problem with that over because they're saying, well, yeah, but Matthew, when he came, his daughter wasn't actually dead. She died a little bit later. And Matthew said, I, I know that, but I'm just giving you, I, I don't care about those kinds of details. Hmm. I, I talk about it today as the difference between the guy version and girl version of a story. <laughs> and almost everyone who's married can appreciate that because women like details. They like lots of them. They want to know what happened, where it happened, when it happened, why it happened, how it happened, who was there, what they were doing, what they were wearing, what they were thinking, what they were saying, saying and how they were feeling, right? Um, but guys, we like bullet points. Just get to the bottom line. And so when we retell a story, a lot of times uh, we will adapt it. We will abbreviate it. We will alter a few minor details in order to get the point across. Let me just give one other yeah. really quick example that everybody can appreciate. Uh, almost everybody can um, appreciate. And that is how many times, and I ask this of all the viewers, how many times have you been out, and let's say you're interested in Christian apologetics and you've talked to a skeptic, and you had a really good discussion and you went back and forth with some arguments and rebuttals, and on, in your, you're in the car, you're driving home, you want to tell your spouse about it or your roommate, or, or, and and you're rethinking how you're going to tell this. And maybe the way you retell it is just a little bit different than how it actually occurred. You want to make the points a little more clearly than maybe you did in that actual conversation. And you're doing this not to mislead the person. You're doing it because you want to crystallize it in your head so that you'll be better prepared the next time. And maybe the person you're talking to will, will get uh, better points in the process. So you're processing all of this and you are making the story a little bit better. You're not trying to deceive, but you're making the story a little bit. Listen, all of us do it. All of us have done this at times and we feel it's fine. And this is what's going on in ancient literature. And it happens at times with the gospels. Yeah. So that's good to, to think about those examples. Cause I think that we often, you know, want to apply a 21st century way of doing history or reporting history in the very fact centered accuracy based approach that we have. And it's almost like a, it's almost like understanding the different genres of scripture where we try to interpret the Proverbs like we would a historical narrative. And it's like, no, you, you can't interpret it in the same way. At the same time, uh, we, we often tell stories in a similar way and it's not to be deceptive. It's not lying. It's not, you know, cheating, but you know, there's different things that are emphasized and that doesn't necessarily create a problem. Now, um, I, I want to get into a couple of different examples, but I know that like, um, and I, and I don't want to ruin anything. So I know you have a YouTube series coming up, I think starting June 1st, or, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, but, uh, obviously not all scholars, uh, are completely in agreement and that's normal that there's going to be disagreement. There's dialogue that happens, uh, but you have received some critique on this approach, uh, and you are going to be covering that, uh, in your series on June 1st, I think mainly coming from Dr. Lydia McGrew. Um, but uh, oh. is there anything that just briefly that you want to just share of like what the, I guess the critique is against your view and, and what you would say to that? And then maybe I'll push people over to your channel and say, Hey, go check out those series if you're more interested in this. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say what McGrew, she's not a New Testament scholar. She's fairly new to the, you know, looking at this field. She, her degree is in English literature and, and she's a Christian philosopher as well. Nice. Um, and so she's come over and she insists on harmonization. Okay. And I do think harmonization can be legitimate, um, at times, but 
I don't think it's the best way to do it, especially when we can recognize these compositional devices that are not only prescribed in textbooks um, for which uh, people were trained, but also we can infer, and this is something that has for years been identified by classicists and New Testament scholars. So she's operating out of her field here. And I think she makes a number of mistakes, which I will be, I'm not going to give away any of this. I'm just, uh, you know, if a person wants to see this, um, there will be a series of videos um, every Monday and Thursday throughout the month of June. Um, I believe they're going to be released at 1 p.m. Eastern time um, throughout the month of June. So you'll be able to see how I review her work at that point. Um, well, yeah, so that's all I'll say. Okay, perfect. Um, I just, something popped in my mind and of course I just blinked um, in, oh, uh, so there obviously are different ways of approaching this um, and using uh, your approach on, on compositional devices, there's harmonization, uh, but there's ways in which you kind of talk about that it actually maybe is destructive um, or creates more problems. And so what are some of those ways in which maybe some Christians uh, unknowingly are, are trying to harmonize or trying to solve some of these differences uh, that maybe kind of get them into some more trouble? Well, uh, one I can think of right away are, is the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew and one in Luke. And they try to reconcile this and say, oh, you know, the one in Luke goes through Mary and the one in Matthew goes through Joseph. Well, if Joseph wasn't really Jesus' father, why would you do it through Joseph anyway, right? It's meaningless because there's no tie there anyway uh, uh, through the seed. Um, so that'd be one thing. But you also miss what's really going on here by trying to reconcile the two uh, genealogies. Because when you go to the Old Testament, I, I believe it's Chronicles, that uh, there are a whole lot of, um, of generations that are missing in Matthew's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, in verse 17, after going through these generations, he sums it up and says, okay, so there were 14 generations between um, uh, Abraham and David, 14 between uh, David and the deportation to Babylon and 14 between the deportation and Jesus in all. And these are all the generations, he says. OK, so there's three sets of 14 or 42. Well, if that's all the generations, what happened to a lot of those different generations that are mentioned in Chronicles and that Luke have that Matthew doesn't have? So that's a problem. A second thing is Matthew cheats because on the third set of 14, he reuses Jeconiah, which is the last name in his second set. And why would you do that? Well, he's doing it because he's concerned to get these three sets of 14. Hmm. And what's going on here, Ryan, is Matthew is using a rhetorical device back then called gematria, whereby a writer would assign a numerical value to a number. I, I'm sorry, a numerical value to a letter. So it's like we would say one for A, two for B, three for C, four for D. Well, in Hebrew, you could do the the word David has three letters in it, Dawid. You have the D, which is a four, the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, a V, which is the sixth letter in the alphabet, and then D again, four. That adds up to 14. And scholars for years, gospel specialists, have seen that what Matthew is doing is he emphasizes throughout his gospel, there's a, a real emphasis that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. So by the three sets of 14 and the rhetorical device of gematria, what, what Matthew is saying and emphasizing in an artistic manner is that Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. And so if you, if you, he's not trying to be, he's not inventing generations to put in there. 
All right. But he's not really concerned to get them all in. He's more concerned with an artistic arrangement presentation of his genealogy to communicate that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. So you're going down the wrong road Mm. if you're trying to reconcile these two genealogies, because that's not what Matthew was trying to do in lay out these things in a precise manner. Oh, interesting. That's fascinating. Um, Okay, so I want to look at a couple more of these differences, and then we'll get to some of the questions that have come in. Uh, So again, if you are still watching, you have some more questions, send those in, and we'll try to get to those. Uh, But, you know, these, again, maybe maybe I'm just not reading my Bible as well as I should be. Um, And so, um, you know, even with the degree in apologetics and my undergrad in theology, uh, some of these, like, were surprising to me. And I'm like, how did I never see this before? And so I'm assuming... Other Christians are like me, uh, and maybe haven't well, seen these. Where did you get your degree in apologetics <laughs> from, Biola? Oh, well, you should have got it in HBU. Then you <laughs> would be reading your Bible correctly. <laughs> oh man, I don't know why I had you on. I just I, I've had a few <laughs> HBU people on. Maybe I just need to stop these interviews. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyways, now Biola is a great program. In fact, I, I tell my friend Sean McDowell often there that, uh, you know, when we have a student in our MA program in Christian apologetics at HBU who just can't cut it, we gladly recommend them. Biola is the second choice. (laughs) There you go. Sean loves that, I bet. That's great. And they do have a good program yeah. out there. Oh, I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. And it was, it was, man, I learned so much and I'm glad I get to continue uh, using it and doing this kind of stuff and just encouraging people in it. Um, okay. So, so one of the, the, uh, the, the differences that you mentioned is in the Gadarene demoniacs. Uh, and so uh, not only is um, uh, there a, a difference in location uh, where you have pointed out that Matthew locates this in the country, in the county uh, or the country of the Gadarenes, uh, but you have Luke um, adding that's opposite Galilee, and I think Mark pointing out that it's in the Gerasenes. Uh, but also, uh, you have one demoniac in Mark and Luke, but Matthew actually points out to two demoniacs. And we all know the story of Jesus showing up, and there's a demoniac, and then he, he says, I am legion, and you know, cast out the demons into the pigs, and they run off the cliff in the water. Um, I guess, I, I don't know, I just never noticed that like Matthew has two demoniacs that Jesus is uh, speaking to versus Mark and Luke only have one demoniac. And so how do we reconcile this? That's a very difficult one, Ryan. And, you know, we can just speculate with that. Um, you know, one thing I remember Craig Keener, I asked him about it and he suggested that maybe what Matthew's doing, there are occasions, uh, where, uh, Mark, um, has some stories about uh, Jesus healing demons, um, that Matthew's not including. So what maybe Matthew is doing is he's just doubling up, um, you know, having two demoniacs in the story with Legion so that he doesn't tell two separate accounts. Of course, that's just speculation. We can only speculate. We just don't know. Um, you know, we can say literary spotlighting there would be a possibility, but I don't know. You know, to me, that's quite ad hoc, too. It's just it's difficult to know. Maybe Matthew had two because it's legion and he wants to show the plurality of the demons in here. You know, I I, I don't know. All we can do is guess on something like this uh, pertaining to the location. That's a that's a troublesome thing. Um, and we don't know the you know, I've been to Israel twice. Um, the. Um, the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, these are two different kinds of areas. Uh, one of them, I forgot which one, is in the southwest, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Um, so there, it wasn't even close. You know, it, it, it'd take a while to walk from there to the Sea of Galilee. Um, 
and so cliffs down into the into the sea that that doesn't work so i don't know what's going maybe some of them got a, uh the location confused maybe there was a place that was called the garrison or the gadarenes at that point that we just don't know today but you know that's that's one where we have to just acknowledge it is a reasonable candidate for an error in terms of the location not that it is we might be able to resolve it sometime, but it is certainly a reasonable candidate for one. Yeah. So would you say the same thing then is going on? Here's a second example. The same thing's going on with uh, the two blind men uh, in Mark. Um, and so you have uh, Matthew uh, pointing out that there are two blind men. I think it was um, uh, Mark and Luke uh, only have one. And again, you kind of have this difference where uh, in Mark 10:46, Jesus came to Jericho and was leaving the city when the blind beggar mm -hmm. cried out to him. Matthew 29, 20, uh, 20, 29 also has Jesus leaving Jericho, but Luke 18:35 uh, has Jesus approaching Jericho. And so, yeah. you know, is he leaving? Is he approaching? How come they can't get this right? <laughs> you know, we just don't know. I mean, that's another case where it is a reasonable candidate for an error, you know? Or it could just be that, um, as it is when many narratives of something that happened decades ago, we might just not remember the details exactly, and it's not really relevant. So one author just places it before going into Jericho, and the other puts it after. We find something like this with uh, Jesus predicting uh, that Peter would deny him three times uh, before the rooster crowed that night. So in Matthew and Mark, the prediction, Jesus tells Peter this, um, after the Passover meal in the upper room, and while they are crossing over, now they're on the, the Mount of Olives headed toward Gethsemane, and that's when Jesus tells Peter. Whereas in Luke and John, it's while they're having the Passover meal in the upper room in Jerusalem. So, you know, this could just be one of those things where the author isn't necessarily, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily remember the precise location at what had happened, but he knows that it happened. So in order, you know, rather than saying, well, this happened that evening and, you know, no footnotes here or anything. So rather this happened this evening, but I don't really remember exactly when it happened, whether it was, I'm thinking it happened on the Mount of Olives after dinner, but it could have happened during, I just don't really remember. No, you wouldn't do that. You want to make this a good narrative, and so you just place it somewhere mm. where you think it probably happened. You know, we can only guess on something like this. Yeah. So I think, you know, as we kind of wrap this up, I think it's good just to be aware of these because, you know, I find that the, the more I talk to high school students, which that's my, you know, my, my areas and speaking to high school students and, and I, I do an atheist role play, right? Where, I, where they think I'm an atheist. Sometimes they know I'm, I'm role playing, but other times they don't know. Uh, and I, and one of the things I often point out is got is contradictions throughout the whole Bible. Um, and I'll point out, well, you guys know that even your own Bible admits it has mistakes. You know, John chapter eight, it says that this is a late edition and, and you have, uh, you know, the, so the woman caught in adultery is one and you have some others and you know you often see on Facebook whatever you know that the, the ESV and NASB has taken verses out of the Bible compared to what was in the you know the New King James version and 
in King James Version. And so uh, sometimes we're aware of this or sometimes we're not. And all of a sudden we see, oh my goodness, there's a difference, there's a change. Someone makes us aware of these things and it kind of freaks us out and causes that doubt. And so kind of what would be your, your closing words uh, as you, you've shown how to reconcile some of these and, and some, some uh, compositional devices that maybe have been used, but also some of them are difficult and we're not quite sure. How can we still kind of walk away uh, confident that we do um, trust scripture and that it is reliable and accurate in the things that it tells us so that we base our salvation on it. Well, just recognize that these differences are almost always in the peripheral details, right? So the kind of things that we've been talking about, did Jairus's daughter die after Jairus had left the house and was talking to Jesus? Or did she die before he left the house? Does that change the fact that she died? Um, what about how many times did the rooster crow, you know, before Peter did not, was it once like Matthew, Luke, and John say, or was it twice, uh, that the rooster crowed like Mark says, well, does that change anything about Peter denying Jesus three times and the rooster crowing? No, I, I mean, it really doesn't really matter. Um, so I would say, look, all of the differences like this, virtually every last one of them are in the peripheral details. So just don't get hung up on that. Yeah. Um, and it, but most importantly, if Jesus rose, Christianity's true, period. It's game, set, match, and nothing changes that. So when somebody, uh, a non-believer, someone just brings up all these different gospel differences, uh, before I go into any of this stuff about compositional devices or, or possible harmonizations, possible solutions, I say, would you agree with me that if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, even if there are some errors and contradictions in the Gospels? And they'll usually say, yeah, and I'll say, okay, so let's focus then on the resurrection of Jesus. And then once we you, you conclude whether Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus rose from the dead, then I guarantee these Gospel differences won't be that much of a bother to you anymore. Yeah. Um, if you conclude that he did not rise from the dead, then the gospel differences won't bother you either because you'll know the whole thing's just uh, uh, bad. Yeah. Um, so focus, keep the main thing the main thing, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. That's such a good reminder. Again, uh, don't throw out something we have overwhelming reason to believe, the resurrection of Jesus, because of other things that are difficult uh, to understand. Um, awesome. So in our last few minutes together, uh, I want to address some of the questions that came in. Some people had a few comments or questions for you. And so the first one here uh, is, uh, what is your advice uh, from William? What is your advice for someone who isn't going to get a degree in the New Testament, but desires to read technical scholarship? Um, read technical scholarship. <laughs> um, so it depends where you, you want to do. Do you want to focus in New Testament studies? I mean, I think that's the, uh, the really cool thing. And in fact, there's so many different philosophers out there that um, they just come over and they get into gospel studies and New Testament studies because that's where it's at. Philosophers answer all the questions nobody's asking, but New Testament people answer the questions that people are asking, right? <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell so, that to William Lane Craig coming on next week as a philosopher. No. <laughs> excellent, good, because I used to tease him with that all the time. You know, he was studying abstract objects for 10 years, and and I'd tease him about that. Yeah. And, you know, is the color red eternal? Well, now you can see, Bill, why I get so excited about New Testament studies, <laughs> because we are answering the questions people are asking. That's good. Um, so, anyway, he's a great guy. Yeah. And I know that stuff is, is, uh, is important. It's just... Um, it doesn't interest me that much. <laughs> um, 
But I'd say, you know, there are various things. What do you want to focus on? Do you want to focus on the resurrection? Um, I got a big book on it, 700 and some pages. Um, that will give you a comprehensive look. In fact, Gary Habermas thinks right now it's the best book in print on the resurrection. Now, of course, when his 5,000, 6,000 page magnum, magnum opus comes out, yeah. then mine will be the Reader's Digest version <laughs> and you'll get his. But until then, I, I guess mine is the book that he would recommend. Yeah. If you want to do something on gospel reliability, then I'd say Craig Blomberg's book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, is an excellent book. The sec get the second edition, which came out, I believe, in 2007. Um, that, that's a great book. Um, I've got an article on my uh, website uh, that was published last year in the journal Religions that talk compares the historical reliability of Mark's gospel with Suetonius's Life of Augustus, which is his finest a biography, and Suetonius wrote closer to modern biographers than anyone else in antiquity. Yeah. So it's an interesting comparison. That's something you can do. Perfect. I'd get a New Testament introduction, a good New Testament introduction. These aren't, don't be deceived by the title. Um, it's it's a book that's usually for grad students in, in the field of New Testament studies. Um, so it will talk about authorship, um, who wrote it, when they wrote it, all the pros and con arguments, who are the people to whom they wrote it, what's the major themes for every piece of literature in the New Testament. So I've got a, like behind me, I've got a, a shelf that's full of this, the shelf here is full of different New Testament intros and they bleed into the second shelf. Um, there's some really good ones out there and you can see the different um, arguments. Um, maybe if the, I, gosh, there's just so many different ones, but I get them from conservative ones all the way down to liberal skeptical ones. And so I can get the full gamut of what scholars are saying. So you can get multiple of them and study them that way. I think New Testament intros are a lot of fun. Cool. And of course, for the Old Testament, same thing for Old Testament intros, if that's yeah. where your interest is. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, next question here is, uh, do you think that Jesus said the I am sayings? And if not, why? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I don't know that we can know. I'm with Raymond Brown on that. I just don't know. Um, the, the thing is that Craig Keener says that all Johannine scholars acknowledge that there's some degree of adaptation, that John adapts the, the Jesus tradition. So um, he's writing the, the last gospel. He's writing after all the others did. And so why just do another one? Um, maybe he's thinking, I want to do something a little bit different here. And so most Johannine specialists recognize that something different is going on in John's gospel. It's trying to guess what that is. Hmm. Uh, N.T. Wright had a, a pretty humorous statement that I think summarizes what most Johannine specialists, those, I'm talking about those who have studied John for decades, yeah. who have really spent a lot of time in John trying to figure out what's going on here. And N.T. Wright says, I feel about John like I feel about my wife. I love her very much, but I don't claim to understand her. Um, so, uh, you know, if you want to see this for yourself, all you do is read Matthew five times, then read Mark five times, then read Luke five times. And you'll notice that Jesus sounds very similar throughout those three Gospels. And then read John five times, and then read First John five times. And what you'll notice is that Jesus in John He's pretty much teaching the same things as we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he sounds very different in John than he sounds in the Synoptic Gospels. And then you also notice that he sounds a whole lot, Jesus in John sounds a whole lot like John does in 1 John. Hmm. 
So most like F.F. Bruce, very conservative scholar, he wrote a commentary on John's gospel and the Johannine epistles. And he said that with John, he takes the Jesus tradition. And what we have with John is an expanded paraphrase, a translation of the freest kind, a transposition into another key, and much more. Now, these are conservative evangelical scholars who are making these statements, and Craig Keener, who have studied these things for years. Hmm. So, you know, in John's gospel, you don't have any parables. But in Matthew, it says that Jesus spoke and taught everything in parables. So what's going on here? You know, in the other gospels, Jesus is just trying to keep it hush-hush on who he is throughout his ministry. And John, he's way out there. Before Abraham was, I am, and and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know what's going on here. But Jesus, even in the Synoptic Gospels, I do think, makes claims to divinity, sometimes in his words, but especially in his actions. Yeah, that's good. Um, the next question here. Um, good morning from the Philippines. Uh, I guess morning there, morning. evening here, night for you. Uh, I have a Muslim friend here, always use the so-called contradictions in the Bible. How can I explain the inspiration of the Bible to them? Well, we really, you know, we believe the, divine, the Bible is divinely inspired, but what does it mean to say it's divinely inspired? What did that process look like? Now, I'd say check out an article on William Lane Craig's website, reasonablefaith.org, and just go to the search uh, portion field and type in men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And you'll see a um, article that was published in the inaugural issue of Philosophia Christi, 1999, I believe it was. And um, there he talks about what it means to say the Bible is divinely inspired. What I would do too is look, Muslims believe in a dictation mode of the Quran. We do not believe that for the Bible. Um, So don't let them uh, determine, you know, don't let them determine the course of the conversation or set the rules and say, because the Bible doesn't, uh, divine inspiration for the Bible doesn't look like divine inspiration for the Quran. Therefore, the Bible must not be divinely inspired, you know. Uh, you can always turn that around, too, and say, look, uh, the Quran um, has some ridiculous things in it that have been certainly can be disproven. So the dictation mode that you're talking about here doesn't work for the Quran. Put them on the defense. Yeah. But but don't let them dictate to you what a divinely inspired scripture must look like. That's good. Perfect. All right. So we have two more quick questions and then we'll be done here. Um, so this one comes in of, do you first attempt to harmonize before using these devices? No. And the reason being is I recognize there is a literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if Matthew and Luke are using Mark, which they most certainly are, and we can see it's a literary relationship, then we can compare how Matthew and Luke are using Mark and see the kind of differences involved. So it's now you could harmonize if it's between, let's say, Mark and John or Luke and John or Matthew and John, you you can harmonize, I think. But when it comes to Matthew, Mark and Luke, no, I wouldn't harmonize. I'm going to look, first of all, for compositional devices. Okay. I think that's the more reasonable approach. Okay. There you go. Uh, Last one here. Uh, You seem to be saying uh, that the gospel authors may have embellished some details to make a theological point. Is that right? It's certainly possible. Sure. Okay. 
Perfect. Well, those are all the questions that came in, and uh, I just really appreciate you going over these and, and giving some examples uh, and helping us think deeper about how the Gospels are written, why there are these differences, and how we can reconcile them. Mike, thank you so much uh, for joining the show. My pleasure, Ryan. God bless you. And I already told them about your uh, YouTube series that's coming up here soon, other kind of resources you just want to give um, uh, here at the end of where they can find out more of, of your work. Yeah, well, we do have a lot of uh, videos on our YouTube channel. Just go to uh, YouTube and type in Mike Laconi. You'll see my channel. We've got a series called A Fly on the Wall that we started uh, in in May, and it's fun. You know, it's where I just hang out with some some really cool people, and it's like you, you're part of the conversation. And these are usually only 10 to 15 minutes long, and they're series of probably four per person, and we have them come out like two a week. So you can subscribe, and you can see those. Um We've got some really cool people. I mean, I've had Craig Keener on there, Gary Habermas, um, Chad Williams, former Navy SEAL. He's got some really interesting things. In fact, uh, the fourth interview is going on right now. Um, and then we've got FF Bruce's final doctoral student. We've got Tim Stratton. We've got David Wood and many others who will be coming up with that. And of course, we have a, a, a website, risenjesus.com. And anyone who is interested in apologetics and really learning it, I'd say check out Houston Baptist University. Hey, Biola's or great. Biola. That's a great one, too. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, Biola, Houston Baptist, Liberty, some of the best ones out there yeah. right now. But um, they can complete the, the HBU one entirely online. In fact, we have people overseas that are doing it as well. And we've got William Lane Craig teaching there. We got Nancy Piercy, Mary Jo Sharp, uh, Craig. We got so many really, really, really sharp folks teaching in our uh, apologetics program. So um, check it out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And again, yeah, it's fun joking about Biola and HBU. But again, we, we just want to see more people out there in the world of apologetics. And I've had Mary Jo Sharp and a lot of the people from HBU on. And I just appreciate that. And giving a lot of people an introduction into what you guys are doing there. So thank you so much for taking the time this evening and coming on to discuss your work with us. You bet, Ryan. And for all of you watching, I hope that you guys enjoyed it. Hope this challenged you to think more deeply about Christianity. I hope you've learned and grown through this. Again, make sure you check out uh, all the social media links uh, coming up. Uh, and the interview is coming up again next week. Is Not next week, sorry. Next week is an off week, uh, but the week after on Monday. And so about a week and a half from now is going to be an interview with William Lane Craig uh, discussing the arguments for the existence of God, uh, looking at those, looking at objections against those as well as uh, doing a Q&A, uh, answering your guys' questions about the views that he holds and about Christianity and the Christian worldview. So with that, I'm going to be signing off. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. God bless. Continue to think deeply about God. I just truly won't hesitate to follow your love will guide me.